This morning we have two readings um, from Genesis and from Hebrews. The first reading is from Genesis chapter 14, verses 1 to 24. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Alasar, Tudaloam, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shememah, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shaver Kiriathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is, Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites, who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zor, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim, with Chedorlaom, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Alasar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their provisions, and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eschol and Anna. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions, and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaom, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who were went with me. Let Anna, Eskol and Mamre take their share. And our second reading is from Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 to chapter 7, verse 4. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, 
where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. Well, thank you, B, for reading, and uh, well done for getting all those names uh, right. I'm sh- well, I don't know if they're right. I've got no idea, really, but um, I'm going to try and do the same um, in a bit. Um, turn back to Genesis chapter 14. Um, we're going to spend all of our time here in, in Genesis 14. It's on page 10 um, of the Bible. It'll help you just to have it there in front of you. Uh, let's pray as we come to God's Word. Lord God, our Father, uh, we thank you for this part of your word for Genesis. And we thank you that this word is given to us through a human author, through Moses, but authored by your Holy Spirit. And therefore, Lord, we know that uh, if there's any, any problem this morning in understanding that it's not to do with your word, but to do with us, to do with our own hearts and our own minds. And so, Lord, we ask for your help that you'd give us soft hearts that are ready to receive your word, that are glad to receive it and that are changed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you know um, my wife Jo and I, uh, even a little bit, you'll know that we're pretty different. Um, Opposites attract uh, and all of that. And nowhere is that difference more greatly displayed than in what we like to watch on TV or in films. Uh, So I'm very much into the action. I like the tensions and dramas, the car chases, the battle scenes, all of that stuff. The action is my... A cup of tea, whereas Joe's all about the characters, the, the relationships, the conversations, the dialogue. Uh, she's very much into how a show's having some kind of meaning. And of course, uh, in that regard, um, we're, both, we're both very firmly in the stereotypes of uh, men and women. And our differences in this area, they make it pretty difficult to find things that we both like uh, and both enjoy. And we've got a trail of these kind of jointly started box sets that one of us uh, finishes on our own. And maybe you can relate to that. Now, I want to show you that this episode in Genesis, episode three of Abram's story, it would make a great film or TV show uh, for Joe and I. It's got everything uh, that we could both wish for in it. Now, the first part is all action, isn't it? Verses one to 16. There's a battle of nine kings... There's real tension and drama, there's a kidnapping, there's a daring rescue. And that all sets up the second part, verses 17 to 24, where the camera zooms in on this personal engagement between three characters, the conversation uh, that they have there, which gives us the deep content of the passage. It's really great stuff. So can I encourage you, let's watch together this episode and see all that it has to show us. First of all, then, uh, the action, verses 1 to 16. Now, Beatrice did a great job of reading this for us. Don't be put off by all the names and uh, places. Difficult. It's a lot to absorb uh, initially. Let me show you um, briefly what's happening. Uh, Before that, though, actually, the names and places are important. They're, They're a reminder to us 
that what we have here in Genesis is a real historical account. It's got real historical people and real historical places. In fact, the scholars tell us that Moses, the author of Genesis, uh, here he's using another written account as his source. This is real history. Now, what happens essentially is this. East of Canaan, east of the land, there's this ruling tribal coalition of four kings. And they've subjugated the land of the Jordan Valley, where five other kings rule underneath them. And the four kings have ruled over the five for 12 years. But, verse 4, the lesser kings have had enough. And in the 13th year, they rebelled. They throw off the yoke of their overlords. They seek to rule themselves instead. And of course, this doesn't go down very well with the ruling coalition. Uh, And what they do is they gather this army in the next campaign season in the 14th year, and they send it on a punishment raid under the leadership of one of these kings, probably the chief king, this guy, Kedalama. Now, Kedalama's name is pretty long and it's pretty difficult to say, um, and it's also terrifying. It means the not sparing one, or the not sparing son. So here's a guy who has no mercy. And he and his army, they live up to the name, don't they? In verses 5 to 7, as you look through that list of cities, there they smash their way through the land, destroying and pillaging as they go. The rebellion must be quashed. Nothing is spared in Kedalema's wrath. Now this punishment raid, it draws out the five rebellious kings into this one great pitched battle in the valley of Sidim by the Dead Sea, the Salt Sea, which is described in verse 10 as being full of bitumen pits. That's kind of like um, sort of oily tar. It's that sort of sticky tar um, pits. So that's what's going on. Four kings against five, armies gathered against this dramatic backdrop. You can kind of see the smoke bubbling off the pits. It's very Hollywood blockbuster stuff, isn't it? It's the sort of thing that Peter Jackson would make a 30-minute scene out of, the Battle of the Nine Kings. Let me read what happens uh, from verse 8. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admar, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, that's the five kings, they went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Kedalema, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. So the rebellion then is crushed. And once again, the not sparing one spares nothing. He wins his battle. He drives his enemy into the pits. And all their possessions are taken. And all the people are captured and enslaved. This is very dramatic. And it's a terrible fate, of course, for the people who are carried off. 
But actually, it's likely that none of this would have mattered at all to Moses, the writer, were it not for verse 12. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Here's the real drama of the story. If you were here last week, we saw Lot make his foolish decision to go and make his camp near Sodom, this city that was known for its terrible wickedness. Now we find that he's even more foolishly, he's moved into the city itself, and that leads to this disaster. He can't escape, he too is captured. Word of this reaches Abram, verse 13. One who escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now at this point we might ask, well, how is Abram going to respond? And we might have some doubts about how he will respond because back in chapter 12, just two episodes ago, we saw Abram act with complete cowardice. If you remember, he went down to Egypt and he thought that his life was under threat from Pharaoh. So what he did essentially was to use his wife Sarai as a shield. He effectively gave her to Pharaoh so that he wouldn't be killed. It was an act of real cowardice, and it was a refusal to trust God. But then in last week's episode, well, we saw that that Abram had begun to grow in faith. And I think we see that here too. So he could easily have just stayed out of it, couldn't he? He could have condemned Lot. You know, Lot's made his bed, now he's got a lie in it. Or he could have said, well, look, yeah, that's too bad for Lot's, but it's just too risky for me to get involved. I'm better off out of it. He could have been a coward once again. But instead, he acts courageously, verse 14. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobar, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Abram is willing to lay down his life for his kinsmen. Gathers his trained men, his 318, Uh, That, again, just shows that it's a historical record, a factual account. And with this small force, he chases the retreating army right up into the northern regions. Then he plans, he conducts this night raid. It's kind of SAS-style attack. He attacks the army of these four kings. He defeats them, rescues Lot, and not even just Lot, but the women and the people of the defeated cities. He brings everyone back safely. It is an astonishing act of bravery and an astonishing victory against the odds. It's all action, isn't it? It's a great story. But what's its point? Well, as I said before, in some ways, it's just a setup for what comes next in verse 17 to 24. But before we turn there, I think there is something here that we can learn about the life of faith. And that is that living faith, living faith is compassionate 
and courageous. It's not condemnatory or cowardly. Living faith is compassionate and courageous, not condemnatory or cowardly. Now, what, does, what do we mean? Abram here is compassionate to his foolish kinsman and acts courageously to save him from mortal danger. And in that, he is an example to us of what it means to live a Christ-like life of faith. So it'd be easy for us to look out at people in the world, people who made a mess of their lives, and we think, well, look, they've brought it on themselves, haven't they? If they hadn't made such foolish choices in the first place, well, then they wouldn't have got themselves into that mess. We can be condemnatory. But Abram's not like that. See, he knows, as true believers know, that we're all messed up people. We don't condemn others for their foolishness and leave them to their fate because we know that we're just the same. And were it not for the Lord's grace to us, well, we'd be in the same boat, wouldn't we? In fact, perhaps the compassion and the grace that he's been shown when the Lord saves him when he messes up in Egypt... Perhaps that has now so shaped his heart that he won't condemn Lot for his foolishness, but is moved to save him instead. It is his compassion, I think, that moves him, uh, not just for Lot, but for all of these other poor people as well. It drives him to be courageous, to courageously help them, to save them. He's willing to put his life on the line to defeat their captors and bring them safely home because he's moved by their plight. In this, Abram's example is but a shadow of the serpent-crushing offspring, Jesus Christ. It's a big theme of Genesis. The Gospel writers tell us that the true son of Abraham, his great descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ, was a man full of compassion towards people who have made a big mess of things. Time and again, Jesus runs into people whose sin and whose foolish decisions get them into trouble, people who are held captive by Satan even, and he is not condemnatory of them. He doesn't dismiss them, he doesn't condemn them. Unlike lots of the religious leaders around him at the time, they thought they got what they deserved, but not Jesus. We're constantly told that Jesus' compassion moves him to help them and to save them. And aren't we glad of that? We know that we've made foolish choices. We know that our friendship with the world has got us in a big mess. We know that by rights we deserve judgment. And so aren't we glad that Jesus was not indifferent to our plight? Aren't we glad that he had pity on us, that he was moved to save us, when we found ourselves captive to the evil one, the truly not sparing one. Of course, Jesus goes further than Abraham to rescue us, doesn't he? Jesus' courage is such that he doesn't merely risk his life to save foolish sinners from captivity. No, he actually gives his life to save us. Jesus willingly goes to a Roman cross. He goes alone. He doesn't go with an army behind him, but all alone to pay for our foolish choices. Jesus dies for our sins in our place, 
defeating the forces of evil, rescuing us from Satan's grip to bring us safely home. Jesus is not spared so that we can be. Aren't we glad that he has done that for us? And so then, won't we be changed by that knowledge in our attitude to others? We, as people of faith in Jesus, having received such a rescue, well, perhaps then we'll be shaped by that, shaped by the compassion and the courage of our great rescuer. So that now we don't condemn others, we don't leave them to their fate, but in turn we're moved by compassion and we courageously lay down our lives for their sake, that they too may be saved as they hear the gospel of Jesus. The Abraham's example is but a shadow of his serpent-crushing offspring, Jesus Christ. May we become as he is, with faith that's compassionate and courageous. Now that's the action. Let's listen now to the dialogue. Let's come to the second section where we zoom in for a conversation. Verse 17 and 18 set the scene for the encounter. Verse 17, after his return from the defeat of Kedalama and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. So Abram returns from the victory, goes back into the south of the land to the king's valley, and these two kings come out to meet him. Uh, the king of Sodom appears first. Presumably he's kind of cleaned off the, the tar after falling in. Uh, and the king of Salem comes to meet him. Salem's the old name for Jerusalem. He's a king called Melchizedek. And it's this king that takes center stage uh, first of all. He brings a gift to Abram, bread and wine. He's He's generous and gracious, bringing rich refreshment to a weary man. And we learn too that he is, as well as being a king, he is also a priest, a priest of God Most High. And that makes him the first priest that's mentioned in the Bible. And he's the only priest king. It's quite surprising that he's a worshipper of the true God. There aren't many of those around. He worships Abraham's God, the creator, the owner, the possessor of heaven and earth. And so all in this Melchizedek figure, he's a striking figure. He's a man greater than Abraham in authority, both temporal authority, he's a king, and spiritual authority, he's a priest. And listen to what he says, verse 19 to 20. Melchizedek blessed Abraham and said... Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. So notice there that Melchizedek's blessing, it's a double blessing. Uh, He blesses Abram and he blesses God. And the content of the blessing makes clear that the victory Abram has achieved has in fact been won by God. God Most High has delivered your enemies into your hands. Now, if I were Abram, I might have objected at that point. You know, hang on, I won the battle. 
You know, me and my, okay, I had 318 men and, and a couple of allies, but, but we were the ones who did it. But he doesn't do that. He accepts the verdict. God gets the glory for the victory, not Abram. In fact, what Abram does is he acknowledges the greatness of this priest king. He gives him a tenth, a tithe of all the spoils of victory. It's a way of honoring, of saying, yeah, you're right. So you pay the tithe to the one in authority over you, to a priest or to a king, and in this case, both. We'll come back to that in a moment. For now, let's see the contrast between this king of Salem and the king of Sodom. He speaks in verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anna, Eshkol and Mamre take their share. Contrast is quite striking, isn't it? Where the king of Salem was gracious and generous, the king of Sodom is rude and demanding. He brings no gift at all, he offers no thanks, and he speaks very abruptly. It's literally, give me people Keep goods yourself. That's what he says. It's a very cheeky demand, isn't it? Abraham as the victor, he's got the right to, to do what he pleased with the spoils. The king of Sodom's failed to protect his people. In fact, he's fled. He's run away into the tar pit uh, to save himself. You'd think he'd at least say thanks, but he's only thinking of himself and what he's lost. He's only out to rescue something from this defeat for himself. And Abraham's response shows just what he thinks about him, doesn't it? He makes this solemn oath to God. He says, I'm not going to take a scrap from you. He won't take a scrap from this wicked king, other than what's already eaten and what his allies are owed. I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that's yours, lest you should say, I've made Abram rich. Contrast is striking, isn't it? Abram will freely honour the righteous king of Salem but will have nothing at all to do with the wicked king of Sodom. He won't have anyone say that Sodom has made him rich. He knows that anything he has been given, anything he receives, comes from the Lord's hand, and he wants God to get that glory. And that's the end of this meeting. So, what are we to do with it? Well, two things as we draw uh, to a close. Two things here that we learn about the life of faith. Number one, faith gives glory to the Lord alone. We're so quick to claim credit for our successes, aren't we? We do well in our exams. We play for a successful sporting team. Uh, we get a promotion at work or a flourishing, run a flourishing business or, or our children do well at any of these things. And we're so often quick to claim the credit for ourselves. Don't we do that? We pat ourselves on the back, well done me. Or we glory in the praise of others who recognise our achievements. 
And we even do this in church life. We run a successful ministry in the church and lots of people turn up, lots of people saying how much they enjoy it, and even lots of people coming to faith in Jesus. And we think, well, yeah, I'm pretty good at this, actually. It's all down to me. It's so easy for us to look at our success, be it in work or in life or in ministry, and start to think, well, this is all down to me, actually. We start to credit ourselves or accept credit from others for when they recognize our brilliance or our courage or our hard work. But that's not the life of faith. Now, Christian faith doesn't deny that there are successes and victories. It attributes them properly. See, this account, does, it does recognize that Abram acted courageously and compassionately. He did. But it ultimately attributes the victory to God alone. He gets the glory. Blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. Now that's going to become an important to the promised land. And they're there to act courageously as they go in. They're going to fight their enemies. But they're always to acknowledge that the victory, any victory they have, will ultimately be down to the Lord alone. And so must we too. The life of faith says that any achievement, any success on our part in school, in business, in life, in parenting or in ministry is ultimately down to the Lord and his grace. So he alone gets the glory. That's the first thing that we learn from these verses. The second one is this. Faith acknowledges the greatness of the Lord's priest king. And there's a little bit of explaining. Uh, we remarked earlier a little on the figure of Melchizedek. He's noteworthy even within Genesis. He stands out. Uh, but for those of us who were here last year, we worked our way through the book of Hebrews. And we know from that book that he's more significant than we first realized. Now you'll be pleased to know that I'm not going to start um, repeating the sermon that I did on Hebrews 7, which was uh, last year. You can listen to that again on the website um, if, you, if you really want to. The main thing that the text of Genesis wants to show us about this figure is that there is a human figure greater than Abraham for us to reckon with. And the text, it shows his greatness. And it does it in four ways, which that passage from Hebrews 7 that was read earlier uh, reveals. Shows us his greatness. First of all, it shows us his greatness by his name and by his title. So he's called Melchizedek. That means king of righteousness. And he's king of Salem. That means king of peace. So here is a king of righteousness and peace who comes as a servant bringing a gracious gift of bread and wine. Second thing, his greatness is revealed by his blessing of Abraham. This may be unfamiliar to us, but in the book of Genesis and in the Bible as a whole, blessings go from superior person to inferior person. So they come from the top down. That Melchizedek blesses Abraham shows his superiority in spiritual matters. He's greater. And then third, Abraham's tithing towards him. 
So if blessings come down, then tithings go up. You, you tithe towards those who are greater than you, to those in authority over you, to kings and to priests. And then fourth, his lack of genealogy. He's got no family tree. That's unlike all the other fig- righteous figures in Genesis. They all have parents. We're told about them. We're told when they're born. We're told when they die. But this guy, he just appears and then disappears in the text. There's no formal end to his ministry or to his rule. That's just what the text says. And so what you do is you put all that together, and it's clear that Genesis is showing us that Melchizedek is a figure greater than Abraham. That's what we're supposed to notice. And here's why I think we're supposed to notice that. It shows us that Abraham is not the ultimate answer to what is wrong with humanity and wrong with the world. And we might have just started to think that he he could be. He's just had this amazing victory over these evil forces. But he's not. There's, There's one in the story who even Abraham acknowledges is greater than himself. And the writer to the Hebrews tells us that this Melchizedek, he's like a prototype. So he's a prototype of the truly great one who is to come, Jesus Christ. Melchizedek's the prototype. Jesus is the real deal. Jesus is the one who comes to serve us, bearing the signs of grace, to bless us. Jesus is the one who rules us in righteousness as our king. Jesus is our great priest who can make peace with God for us by his sacrifice. Jesus is the one who comes to solve all that is wrong with humanity and with the world. Genesis 14 is a wonderful story full of action, full of meaning. It's got lots to show us about the life of faith. We've seen that. It commends to us compassionate, courageous faith that moves us to work for the salvation of others. It commends faith that gives glory to God alone and faith that recognises the greatness of Jesus Christ. It calls us to live with faith like that. But above all, this episode is... This episode in the life of Abraham, it acts as a great signpost to Jesus Christ. See, what we thought was just an episode, it turns out that it's actually a trailer. It's a trailer for the epic blockbuster that is to come. It points us forwards with expectation to the coming of the great serpent-crushing rescuer and to the great priest-king who is Jesus. There's much for us to discuss afterwards. Please do that. But let's pray as we close. Lord God, our Father, as we get to grips with this book of Genesis and we're still learning how to do that together as a church, we pray, Lord, that you would give us greater and greater insights not only into what it means to live the life of faith, but also into how it points us to your Son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you, Lord God, that you sent your Son to rescue us from our captivity to Satan, 
from our foolish decisions which lead to our judgment. And we thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you had uh, tremendous courage, that you had compassion upon us that led you to the cross where you saved us and you bring us safely home. Our Father, we thank you too that as we've seen in this story, that the Lord Jesus Christ is our great priest and our great king. Lord, there's much for us that we don't understand about that and lots for us to learn about him. And we pray, Lord, that you teach us over the course of this series to keep growing in our knowledge of him. In Jesus' name, amen.